You know, I was reminded I was, as I was preparing for this about a, a story I heard many years ago, a story about two men who were involved in a plane crash, and they were marooned on a desert island. And immediately one of them begins to panic, like tries to start a fire and tries to build a shelter as fast as he can, freaking out, terrified that he's going to die. And the other man just relaxes and put, relaxes under a palm tree. And the, and the man is offended by that. He says, don't you know, we're stuck here, we're going to die. And he says, look, it's okay, it's going to be all right. Look, I make $500,000 a year. And he says, what difference does that make? We don't have, who are you going to buy a boat from? We're stuck here. We have no cell reception. We're going to die. And, and, he said, and the guy says, no, look, look, you don't understand. I make $500,000 a year. And I tithe on that money. My pastor will find me. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Put things in perspective, don't it? <laughs> we have finally made it to chapter 6. We're a third of our way through, roughly, through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we're getting into this extremely practical section of how we are to live our lives in light of the kingdom of God. In, uh, in the preceding section, it was about bringing clarity to the law. You have heard it said, but I say unto you, we're learning how Jesus was clarifying that the law was unattainably high, that the law was not going to be lowered to let us in, that we were barred out by our own works from coming into heaven. But Jesus fulfilled the law so that those who call upon his name would be saved and washed clean of our inequities and that his righteousness was getting us into heaven. And this section we're jumping into is really how we are to live in response to those truths. In other words, how do I live on earth as a citizen of heaven? How do I live on earth now that I'm a citizen of heaven? That's really the unsaid question that ties most of chapter 6 and, chapter and most of chapter 7 together. What should my spiritual life look like? What should my inner life look like? How should... Um, you know, how, do, how should I relate to others? It's very practical beginning this section of Scripture. And it's going to be really a great series. It's really going to challenge us. And the first big theme we're going to cover, or Jesus is covering, we're just looking back at it, is what our religious life should look like. Beginning in verse 1, going through verse 18. In other words, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, how should I give? How should I pray? How should I fast? Which are really the big three of, of uh, Judaism worship. But verse 1 serves as the thesis statement. The statement that really ties this whole practical section together of our religious life. Let's look at it together again real quick. As it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, some translations might say not to do your charitable deeds before men or to give alms. Uh, but practicing your righteousness before men is really the preferred translation here. As it sets up not just the immediate point of giving, 
uh, which is the next point that comes up, but it, it, it sets up the, the theme as a whole, as referring to our praying and our fasting as well. Um, and it's, uh, it's repeated several times here. Uh, and, and what is that theme? What, what is Jesus' main point that he wants us to get? Well, when you practice your righteousness, when you do things of a spiritual nature, do not be like the hypocrites were. That's his big thing, to be seen by men. You know, hypocrite meaning, especially at that time, being a mask wearer, as they often did for plays in the ancient times. They didn't have full ensemble casts like you do if you go to Broadway these days, but they have... They had very few people with like a mask, with a different mask on both sides, playing multiple characters. You guys see the point Jesus is making. Don't pretend to be something you're not when you're expressing your spiritual life. Don't pretend to be something you're not. It's a theme that's repeated for all three of these sections in verse 2, in verse 5, and 16. Because those hypocrites, the, the, the Pharisees, had the appearance of being pious. They had the appearance of being godly. But in reality, they just, wanted, they just cared about themselves. In reality, they just wanted the honor of being seen by others for their supposed righteousness. They would give, fast, and pray only so that other people would look at them and say, Oh, wow! This person is so holy. They are so righteous. They are, they are so generous, so self-sacrificial. I wish I was like them. Oh, Rabbi so-and-so, you're amazing. That was what they lived for. That's why they did everything that they did. And funny enough, they were the George Costanza of the ancient world. You guys remember that character from Seinfeld? That completely self-absorbed character. There's this hilarious scene uh, that, I, that brought to mind as I was thinking of this. I, it's been so many years. He's, he's at some restaurant picking up some order. And he's picking up his food. And he goes to leave a tip in the tip jar. But the guy gets distracted at the counter and he ends up going into the back. He doesn't see him give his money. So what is this deplorable human being George do. He reaches into the tip jar, takes his money back out, and so that he could be seen putting it back in. Now, does that character care one iota about that person or about that business? Of course not. He did that. He, the only reason he gave was to get that ego boost, to get that smile and the thank you and the, oh, what a generous tip. That's what he was living for. And the reason that scene is so funny, I believe, is because at, at, at a deep level that we might not even consciously be aware of, we resonate with that pettiness. We see that tendency in our own hearts. We desire people to look at us and to say all kinds of good things about us. We desire to have reputations of being generous or righteous, even if it's, in George's case, based off of lies. And I say this to my own condemnation. I mean, 
My flesh, my sinful flesh loves the praises of others. Pride is something that I struggle with. And it is a sin that has cost me more than probably most other sins in my life. You know, before I was wise enough to realize what it looked like, it cost me so much. I was extremely full of myself, especially in my early 20s. I went through one season where I was so full of myself that God could no longer use me for a season. I was in kind of a very public ministry position, and God providentially, in his mercy, providentially removed me from there. Kind of gave me a ministry timeout. Because God doesn't want us to share his glory with another. The glory that belongs to God is due to him alone. And we ought not, and that's what I was doing. I was seeking my own glory rather than God's. Albeit subconsciously, but that's the deceitful nature of pride. And fortunately, I've grown a lot since then. I can now see where my heart is beginning to deviate And I can feel where things aren't right anymore, where my heart isn't where it should be anymore, but I'm not immune to it. Nobody is. Although I do fear it now, with a few years of growth and through knowledge of the Scripture. And the reason I say that is beyond just my personal experience that I just mentioned, but it's because of verse 2 in our Scripture this morning that says, Thus when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in their synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, was Jesus referring to a literal trumpet used in ancient times that people would blow in the synagogues? No. No, that's not the case here. Um, I know I sometimes overemphasize the historical context type stuff, but sometimes a funny metaphor is just that. And Jesus kind of has a sense of humor there. But because at the end of the day, nine out of ten times, you can just pick up your Bible and see exactly what it's talking about. You don't need to see everything through a historical grammatical context to grasp what Jesus is diving at. I heard one theologian say that the word of God is so amazing how even the most aged scholars can drown in the majesty of this book. And yet even the smallest infant in the faith can float gently in its waters. I love that truth. But getting back to my point here, obviously the trumpet here is a metaphor. But we all know what it looks like when it happens, don't we? You know, we we see this when a celebrity throws a press conference in order to write one of those huge laminated checks out to to a charitable organization of their choice or to start their own foundation. And the, the, the cameras are there, the press and paparazzi are all there, everyone's there, it's a big show. Let me ask you guys, is, is that show necessary for the bank to cash that check? Who are all those people there for? It's not necessary to cash that check. And frankly, the same thing happens when we do it, often at us just at a smaller scale. 
You know, even at local smaller organizations, you'll have people make an announcement when they're going to come with a big fancy bank check and so that everyone's there. Maybe a local reporter will be there for the handoff. Something like that will happen. Even between individuals, uh, you know, the big thing now is somebody hiding their cell phone and hitting record so that you can get somebody's reaction when you give them something or surprise them with something. And because that reaction is their reward for their good deeds. And am I mad at these people, by the way? No. No, I'm not mad at these people. Those people are just of the world. And they're acting like the world. I can't be mad at them for that. They're acting according to their nature. But you guys are called to be different. We as Christ's church are called to be different. Which is why it should trouble us when, we say, when it says those who behave this way have received their reward. That praise they receive from others, that pat on the back, that admiration, that oh you're so holy and good. It better be good because that's their reward. That's all that they get. You receive no reward from God if that's, if that's the payment that you receive. And for clarity's sake, I'm not implying that there's some kind of punishment or some kind of judgment other than the possibility of losing your reward. Because verses 3 and 4 discuss what that reward is or give us some clarity about that. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, implied here is a question. What is the greater reward? The praise of men or the reward of God? Who can reward you better? We don't think of that as an either-or question, but the Bible tells us it is. We keep thinking we can have both, but it's phrased here as an either-or. Do you want the blessing of God or the reward of the praise of man. And by the way, the, the praise of man can be so fleeting. I mean, it just, it, you take, can take a whole lifetime to build a reputation these days. But one comment you left on Facebook 10, 15 years ago could be dug up and used against you and ruin your reputation overnight. Men's praise is so fleeting. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And nobody knows that better than our own Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Palm Sunday, he comes riding in and to the shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was Sunday. What were they saying on Good Friday? Crucify him. Crucify him. Not even a week later. Jesus understands better than most the fleeting nature of the praises of men. It reminds me of the Jim Elliot quote who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now that's a good deal. That is a good deal. So let people keep their praises, which might turn to curses by the end of the week. I choose to live by the way God has provided. And by the way, 
It doesn't say when God will reward you. It just says that he will. Some of his rewards are going to be on this side of eternity, and some are going to be on next side of eternity. So there's no guarantee when God is going to bless you. He can bless you and give back to you and reward you on this side in some amazing ways. But the ones that we wait for, the things that we don't see, the things that are waiting on the other side, those are the ones worth living for. Those are the rewards I am most looking forward to. And rather than making everyone aware of your giving, which is what Jesus was talking about with the trumpet there, you shouldn't even think too much about your giving. But don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, some of the best advice that I got when I was being trained for ministry, I got from my pastor who said that when you're receiving a compliment, don't make it weird. Don't, do any, don't say anything silly or holy or overly righteous. Just accept the compliment and move forward. Move the conversation forward. Don't dwell on it too much. Don't soak up all of the comments and the praises and hear them over again in your mind. That's what the Pharisees did. And that'll inflate your ego to no, to no end. But just accept it and move forward. Don't let the compliment go to your head. And that same principle should apply to us and to our giving as well. Go ahead and write that check to the church or to the, your missions organization that you guys support, whatever it is. Send it in the mail, leave it in the plate, and move forward in your mind. Let it go. Don't think about how much you're giving. Don't think about what a big sacrifice it is. Just make your, make your offering and keep going, if you will. I would say yes to that. I'm going to clarify that in one second. And, uh, but, but you're right, because there is a difference. <laughs> there, we, there's the right things and the wrong things for us to be meditating on. It is a good thing for us to worship God through our giving. To go off tangent for a second, um, when we, it is an offering, it is a, the reason why we have and why we are returning to having the offering as part of our worship here in South Amboy is because there is something, it is an act of worship to take what we have and give it to the Lord symbolically. Now that's, that's why we make it such a part of our service rather than, and why for years we didn't just have the plate in the front and in the back. Because there's something about when that is going around saying, Lord, this was mine and I had every right to do with it what I wanted to do. But I'm giving it to you in the, in the context of a worship service. There's something beautiful about that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let me jump ahead to the point where I was about to go to. Because there, there's some people see a contradiction between this section and Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus is saying to let your light shine before men. There's a tension there between letting your light shine before men so that people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And here, keep, keep, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Keep yourself quiet. Don't be like the hypocrites living for the outward praise of men. 
And there's a twofold reason for that. First of all, this section is specifically speaking about our religious experience. You know, our praying, our fasting, and our giving, where letting our light shine really refers to everything else that we do for the Lord in our serving and things we do for our community, our outreach, our evangelism, the food pantry, the Sunday school, all of that stuff. Um, but, and secondly, the emphasis and the heart are the same, the same reason why we let our light shine is the same reason why we're quiet about other things. Because we want people to see God and not ourselves. And we want our hearts to grow closer to God and not become more full of ourselves. Um, I'm going to borrow an example I was going to use next week, uh, talking about our prayer, because it really brings clarity to this. As um, we've all met people that when they pray to God, they, they're a normal person the rest of the day. But as soon as they go to pray in a public space, they take on this King James Shakespearean accent and way about them that is so high and using such lofty language. And even I'm like thumbing through a thesaurus to figure out what they're saying. We've all seen that. And... You know, some people in churches are like, wow, that's really amazing use of language. Man, that person must be so holy and close to God. But that's not how the Lord sees us when we pray with that kind of a tongue. And moreover, those on the outside who are watching look at somebody who's praying like that and say, what is up with this guy? Do I have to be like that? Do I have to use those words to, to, to approach God? And in which case, you know, it, it puts a barrier between people and God. And people are really looking at you when you're praying like that, at least in public. And if you ever really wanted to hear what real genuine prayer looked like, man, you should have heard my mom pray. The way Beth Motley prayed was so beautiful, so genuine, so authentic. Never irreverent. It was just comfortable. She knew who her God was and was comfortable praying and speaking to him. And, you know, I, over the years I had many people, you know, I was next to her as people approached her and said, you know, after she was done praying at the Thanksgiving table or wherever it was, People would come up to her and say, wow, I, I never heard anyone pray like that before. That was, that was beautiful. And, and the, the difference between how she prayed and that Shakespearean Pharisee prayer is that after hearing Beth pray, people weren't amazed by Beth. They were amazed by God who allowed, who would... Let us speak so comfortably with him, to approach him so authentically that we can come as we are rather than trying to be something else. And I'd like to believe that people would hear her pray and think to themselves, you know what, maybe I could approach God like that too. Because I know I certainly did. My prayer life was largely shaped by hers. And I'm sure you guys are getting the distinction that I'm making there. 
So moving forward, uh, there's a final question that inevitably comes up when discussing this topic. How much do I give? How much should I give to the needy? And there is no legalistic amount or percentage in the Bible dictating how much we should give. We'll discuss what the tithe is and was another time, but there are many principles about what we should give or what we should do in general with our money. Chiefly to provide for our own family, 1 Timothy 5.8 talks about that, uh, to support the local church, to support missionaries who are laboring in the gospel. And as we read in our first reading this morning from Deuteronomy 15, to, to give to those who are truly in need and to give generously. That's really the big word in the Old and New Testament of how we are to give, to give generously and unbegrudgingly. Because as Christians, everything we have belongs to God. It's not, you know, Lord, all this is mine and I'll give you a little piece of it. No, all of it is his. I'm just the steward. He is allowed to take care of it for a short time. And when we give, you know, we should always kind of pause for a sec. Anytime we spend our money, we should pause for a moment and think, you know, is this the best use of God's money? So we'll have to park it there for today, but um, Jesus has plenty more to say about money. And Matthew, as a, with his experience as a tax collector, picked up on a lot of what Jesus said about money. So we'll, uh, we'll have more opportunity to expand what he gives, his ter- what, 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 he's, what Jesus' thoughts were on, on giving and on our biblical view of money in general. We'll, we'll come back around that. But if I could boil this whole section down into one pithy statement that we can hold on to, it's whatever we do with our religious posturing and our giving and how we respond in our own minds and hearts after we give, it's don't be like George Costanza. Don't be like that guy with the tip jar in Seinfeld. Don't make your religious expression about others. But do them with God as your only audience, looking to God. And as we give, this is an offering to the Lord when I'm giving to the church, when I'm giving to the needy, when I'm giving to a less fortunate person in my circle of influence who I can help. Give to them knowing that God is my audience and live to glorify him. And there's nothing wrong with feeling good about that. So... As we work to our conclusion, we, 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 we live that way. We see the pettiness of the hypocrites who do it the wrong way. We weep within our own hearts when we see that own wrong propensity within ourselves. And we strive towards the gr- and for the greater reward of being rewarded by our Father in heaven who sees in secret and will one day reward us in his timing. Thanks be to God. Amen.